I didn't scream. I didn't yell. I didn't go ballistic. I called my husband and said, you got to get here. The Freeman's house is burned to the ground and they haven't found the girls. Sixteen and a half years later, we're still right where we were that very first day. Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible had been best friends for most of their lives. When they went missing on December 30th, 1999, they had been celebrating Ashley's birthday. Both girls were now 16 years old. To mark the occasion, Laura was staying over at Ashley's house, a trailer home just outside of Welch, Oklahoma. By 5 a.m. that morning, the Freeman family trailer would be found ablaze, burning in the cold darkness. And the girls? Nowhere to be found. Ashley and Laura's disappearance shook their small-town community. The two were both smart, kind, and well-liked. Laura was a cheerleader. She loved children. In fact, that's what she did to make her money. She would babysit. I'm Loreen Bible. I'm Laura Bible's mother. She would make her little babysitting suitcase, and she'd take it with her to whoever she was babysitting. Very likable. I mean, she would... You know, these are my principles, and you're not going to sway me. You know, I don't believe in something. I'm not going to do it. I don't care who you are. And you cannot like me, or you can make fun of me for it, but I'm still not going to do it. That was just how she was. So Ashley and Laura had been friends for a really long time, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, for, for 16 years. What was Ashley like? Ashley was a basketball player, very outgoing. Both girls were very, uh, did very well in school. They were both, just got elected to both their schools, uh, National Honor Society. Laura showed animals. She showed pigs and stuff. And Ashley would come and stay with us for the week of the fair. And she's like, I want to do that. So Ashley showed a goat in the fall fair. And she's like, I really like this because the fair kids, if you show animals, you got a family there because you're around them. And and she really liked that togetherness. Both girls were well-respected, well-liked. The mystery of Ashley and Laura's disappearance that December night is complex. So many different actors and plot lines. It was hard to keep them all straight. But for me, at the heart of this story is a troubled family, the Freeman family. There was Ashley, her father Danny, her mother Kathy, and her older brother, Shane. Ashley's life at home was rough, mainly because of her father, Danny Freeman, who had in the year prior been accused of child abuse against Ashley's brother, Shane. It's hard to know exactly what Ashley experienced at home, but Lorraine saw warning signs. I will tell you, Ashley, that was the first time that Laura had been in Ashley's home in over a year and a half. Ashley was in our home, and if she wasn't in our home, she would go stay at another young lady's in Welch. You don't stay away from your home, because I grew up in, uh, with an alcoholic father, and you don't stay away from your house unless there's stuff going on. I mean, I just know that. It's hard to imagine the regret that Lorraine feels about allowing her daughter to stay over with Ashley that night. But Lorraine's life had been intertwined with Kathy Freeman's since they were children. Yeah, when we were younger, Kathy's aunt was married to my uncle. So back when we were kids, we were like in the family. But 
they divorced and that was the end of that. You know, we didn't go to their house. They didn't come to our house. We didn't socialize with each other. I, I do tell people now when you have your kids, you need to find out everything about your kids' friends. You know, your home is a safe haven and people like coming to your home, well, there's a reason for it. The sleepover started on Tuesday, December 28th, and carried over into the next day. The girls were best friends on Christmas break from school and wanted to spend all of their time together. I remember doing this with my friends in high school. You never wanted to leave their side. Ashley and Laura were these kinds of friends, inseparable. Laura had went to Ashley's on Tuesday night to spend the night to take Ashley out on Wednesday, the 29th, for her birthday. Uh, Laura was already 16. Ashley turned 16 on the 29th of December. It was late in the day on the 29th that they left Welch to come to Vanita to take Ashley out to eat and take her to Walmart and, and stuff like that. And by the time they got done, it was dark. And we did not allow Laura to drive at night by herself. So Ashley's mom, Kathy, said, uh, why don't we just stop by and see if Laura can stay Wednesday night, and then she can come home Thursday. One night turns into two nights, no big deal. So they come in, she talks to her dad, because I hadn't got home from work yet, and Jay's like, yeah, but, you know, make sure you're here early, because we have dentist appointments. Okay. And then I pass him in the road. And she says, you know, it's so late. Kathy's like, this way you guys don't have to come all the way up there and drive her home. Uh, She'll come home in the morning. So Lorraine sees Kathy and the girls, okays the additional night, and goes on her way. It must be a bittersweet moment to think back on. This would be the last time Lorraine would ever see Laura. The girls were being driven around that night by Kathy Freeman. Lorraine told investigators that Kathy and the girls had gone to a pizza hut, which may or may not have happened. Investigators think it might have been a barbecue joint, which is a small detail, but one that is noted over at the Charlie Project. Both of these restaurants are in Vanita, a neighboring city about 18 miles from Welsh. Welsh is a very small town. The current population is only 619 people. The nearby towns of Blue Jacket and Vanita were close enough to Welsh to practically be the same town. After dinner, the girls met up with Ashley's boyfriend, Jeremy, at a Walmart in Vanita. He gave Ashley a silver heart-shaped pendant for her birthday. He then went with the women, Laura, Ashley, and Kathy, back to the Freeman trailer. Danny had invited some relatives over. Jeremy told investigators that, quote, everyone seemed in a good mood, end quote. I couldn't find any information about who these relatives were or what time they left that night. None of them were ever named as suspects, but it's hard to get a sense of who was or was not in the house before it is found on fire the next morning. But we do know when Jeremy left around 9.30 or 10 p.m., Danny and Kathy Freeman were there, along with Ashley and Laura. Around 5 a.m. that morning, a concerned neighbor, someone driving by, sees the trailer burning and calls for help. Soon after, Lorraine, who was at work at the time, had a visit from police. It was reported at 5.30 in the morning and that the house was a total loss. And I asked him, you know, did you find anybody? And he said they'd only found one person, and that was at 8. 
a.m. And it was in that front bedroom. And I said, well, that's Danny and Kathy's bedroom. But that's all they'd found. He asked me if I knew where things was in their home, which I told them. And then he said, okay, you know, if we hear anything, I'll call you. Meantime, I called my husband. He works down at the lake and said, you got to get here. The Freeman's house is burned to the ground and they haven't found the girls. And then we went up there and 16 and a half years later, we're still right where we were that very first day. Firefighters from the Welsh Volunteer Firefighter Department worked to put out the fire and did so by mid-morning. Investigators found the body of Kathy Freeman shortly after. She had been shot before the fire started, making investigators believe that the fire was set intentionally to destroy evidence. As soon as the sheriff's deputy uh, left my place, I worked for, worked for a McDonald's in town local then. Uh, as soon as he left, my husband drove in, and then we stood down the end of a driveway about a thousand yards while the sheriff deputies uh, were sitting up there. The minute they found Kathy Freeman's body, they immediately called the OSBI. OSBI, or Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, was on the scene quickly. They would not let uh, anybody up there that day. And when they got the coroner, finally got there and got Kathy's body out, which I asked her, I said, whose body do you think that is? And she, she told me, because she was my parents' doctor, and she said, Lorraine, I think it's Kathy. She's got a wedding band on her left hand, and you can tell it's an older female by her pelvic area. But uh, the pictures that I saw after the fact of Kathy laying over the waterbed, you know, it, it was Kathy. It wasn't either one of the girls. Investigators developed an early theory that stuck in their minds that Danny Freeman had killed his wife and abducted Laura and Ashley. It seems an odd conclusion to jump to so quickly, as police were just beginning to sort through the evidence. But police and Danny Freeman had a long history which fueled this early theory. The relationship between Danny Freeman and local law enforcement was ugly and mutually antagonistic. It all goes back to Danny Freeman and the allegations that he abused his son, Shane. The year before Shane, well, year like three months before, Shane was took out of the Freeman's home due to child abuse. Danny had beat Shane. When Shane went to school one day, the ball coach called the HS because uh, Danny had brutally beaten Shane in the legs from the back all the way down enough that he was, blood was just pouring out of it. In December, he had, uh, DHS told Shane he had to go back home, and Shane said, I'm not going to go home. I will not go back to the house. After Shane refuses to go back home, he begins to act up, often by stealing or breaking into homes. Shane was staying with the Bibles during this time and stole some guns and other valuables from them. He'd take things out of people he knew home. Uh, He had borrowed his grandma and grandpa's truck, if he wasn't back at a certain time, then they were going to call the sheriff's department on him and say he stole that truck. Shane takes his grandparents' truck, goes to McAllister, and impersonates a police officer and tries to pull over some girl. She just called 911 and said, you know, I have a police officer 
trying to stop. I am not stopping. I'm going to go to a well-lit area. I need somebody to meet me there because I'm not going to stop. Because, you know, you hear all these people being followed. They found out, you know, hey, wait a minute. This isn't our real policeman. He, he fled, took his grandparents' truck out in the middle of a field and busted the tie rod in it. So he stole a truck and he come back to Craig County. Uh, the, the day before he was shot, he stayed in my home from 9 a.m. that morning to about 3.15 in the afternoon. The, the gun and the pistol he had with him when he was shot was from my home. He had told kids his, that he would commit suicide or he'd do suicide by cop. And that's exactly what happened. He put himself in confrontation and Shane died on January 8, 1999. The officer who shot Shane, a man named David Hayes, was investigated and found to be justified. Shane had reached for his pistol, and the officer had acted in self-defense. Danny Freeman and a majority of the Freeman family believed that the officer murdered Shane in cold blood. They argued that the autopsy proved that Shane had his back turned when the officer fired. Shane's death began a feud between Danny Freeman and the local police that got worse and worse as time went on. In March of 1999, two months after Shane's death, Danny went on trial for child abuse. Danny maintained that he never hurt Shane. The jury deadlocked, asking if they could recommend counseling instead. When they were told they couldn't, they acquitted him of any wrongdoing. During this time, Danny's relationship with police was particularly tense. For the next year, between Danny and the sheriff's department, it was tit for tat. You know, they would follow Danny around because they didn't know what he was going to do. And then Danny would go, he found with that sheriff's deputy where he lived, and would sit out out from his home and watch his kids play and follow them when they'd go places and follow his kids to school. So it was a tit for tat. Because of this history with Danny Freeman, police only entertained one biased theory that day. Investigators spend the day at the trailer and leave that night, releasing the scene to the public. Instead of actually doing their jobs, you know, removing stuff, looking underneath stuff, oh, they're going off of, hey, you know, Danny's alive. He went off the deep end, shot Kathy, and he's got the girls, you know. Which, by the time they got Kathy's body out of there, they said, oh, we've looked. Uh, it was 6 p.m., and it was dark. There was no stars, no moon, no nothing. I mean, it was pitch black. So to go over into the burn area, because they released the scene to us that night. They said there's no other bodies in this, in this fire, you know, but it was too dark to even go try to look because you didn't know what you were stepping into. All the floors fell through except the one uh, where the Kathy was laying over the waterbed. The next morning, Lorraine and her husband Jay returned to the trailer to look for any clues they could find. What they did find was shocking. The Freemans had a Rottweiler dog. And that dog got up, he was laying up there on the floor, And when we got closer, there was Danny. You heard that right. The next morning, as Jay and Lorraine searched through the ashes of the burned-out trailer, they found Danny Freeman's body. 
The dog, named Sissy, was Ashley's, and according to some reports, had actually been lying on the remains of Danny Freeman's head. Danny was shot at point-blank range. He had no face. Did you see it first? Like, how did that happen? How? Oh, that sounds so horrifying. Well, Jay had looked over there, and he looked at me, and he said something about the dog, and he said, Hey, Lorraine, come here. And I went over there, and he said, that's a body, and I went ahead and climbed up on the floor, and I looked, and I said, it's a Danny. Here lies the body of the man. From there, I went back up the road. I called 911. I told him who I was and where I was at, and there's another body in the fire. It's that of a male. How do you know that? You can see the genitals. It's that. Because I was saying it was Danny, and they kept saying, well, until we know 100%, you can't say that. Yeah, I can. You may not want to say it. I can say what I want. They told me all day and last night. They were the experts. They were 100% sure there was not another body in that fire. They asked me, where do you think your daughter is? I said, you tell me. It's 530 in the morning. The house burns to the ground. There should have been four bodies. Those girls should be in there, which I said, then how do I'm not taking your word that you search because you stepped on this man. He had boot prints on his body where he'd been stepped on the day before. They walked right over him. The OSBI agent did, yes. It just seems so mind boggling that that could even happen. Well, that's why we're still here 16 and a half years ago. So unfortunately, the whole first day, Things that could have been there, you know, you can't go back and find now. When police get there, Lorraine is understandably angry. So when they get out there, that guy goes over to his car, and all he was told to say is, what I was sent out here to look at, it's confirmed. And they're like, would you repeat yourself? He says, what I was sent out here for, he wouldn't even say the Freeman property, it's confirmed. So the next thing we know, OSBI agents are getting there again. The county's getting there. They're saying that the scene had so much stuff that had burnt that the dew from the being there all night made it come down, and that's why it was so easy to find the body. I said, you know what? I will give you that. But if you'd have moved stuff on that only floor, the only floor left together, you'd have found him but you chose not to. So today, you signed over the scene. It's not your crime scene. You want to come in here and help us? You can, but we're not moving. We had about 150 people that come up there, and they were like, what do you need us to do? Which at the time, the OSBI agent said, they're not coming over here, and I said, that's not your call. These people are going to literally help us pick up refrigerators and deep freezes and beds and dressers and pick them straight up. How do you know the girls didn't crawl underneath something or they were on the ground and something fell over? How do you know that? You don't. We took every piece of furniture, uh, metal, and picked it up and we sent it out to somebody and they just moved it on until we made a big pile. When we got all that done, we actually looked on the ground underneath uh, and kind of looked through stuff, and then we sifted that out, and then we had um, a man we knew brought over big saws, and we cut the axles on that trailer home, and we literally pulled the axles apart 
and pulled the tra- trailer out so we could get to the ground. And by this time, I knew the girls were not in there. After dismantling the trailer's wreckage, Ashley and Laura were nowhere to be found. But there were many important clues that told a puzzling story. The first clue was Laura's car, a blue Corsica, parked outside the trailer with keys still in the ignition. First day we're up there and thinking, okay, well, if somebody took them and they were killed, could they be in the trunk? They didn't even think of that till the second day. Another clue was money. Laura had also left a purse inside the trailer with around $200 inside. Ashley had been saving money to buy her own car, and nearly $1,200 was missing from the freezer trailer where Ashley kept it. Others said that the amount could have been more, closer to $3,500. Now, the Freemans have said that, oh, you know, she had a lot in the in the freezer in a, in a jar. I don't know. I just know that she had been saving money to buy her car. After Danny's body and these clues were found, investigators explored several possibilities, none of which yielded many results. The first looked at the girls themselves. Could they have killed Danny and Kathy, potentially to get back at Danny Freeman for years of alleged abuse? Maybe the girls left to start a new life together, to get out of Oklahoma and never look back. Well, right after this happened, within a day, we had uh, 50 FBI agents hit Craig County. And one of them did come to our house. And I said, okay, so what do you think the other theories are? One of the theories was that could the girls have shot Denny and Kathy and went off with strange young men. And I pointed my cast down, I saw the FBI agent, I said, do you think Laura and Ashley killed Denny and Kathy? And he looked at me and he said, why would a mother ask that? I said, well, because I need to know how hard I have to fight for my daughter. And if you're thinking it, then by God, I want to know it. He said, you know, that lasted about 30 seconds. If those girls are going to do anything, she they're, they're going to take Ashley's money if she had any. Laura's going to take her first, and they're going to drive her car out of here. Investigator theory number two is that someone could have been after Danny Freeman and that the girls were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Somebody come here to confront Danny. Unfortunately, Kathy got shot, and now the girls are nowhere to be found. But this is like on day three, you know, and people go missing. You got 48 hours. After that, you can be anywhere in 48 hours. So I had read that um, Danny was, was he a drug dealer? Did they find proof of that? Was that going on in the house? Did I actually find drugs? No, but he grew marijuana. He had a buddy that lived in Kansas. Like there's 17 miles between Kansas and where Danny lived. And between the two of them, they would, they would grow marijuana. So if one would ever get caught, then the other one would have some to sell. But there are people that we've talked to that bought marijuana from Danny Freeman. Do you think that had anything to do with it? Well, you know, one of the things we're looking at is his partner is in Kansas in prison for a second-degree murder of a lady. Another theory points to the Craig County Police, especially Officer David Hayes, who shot Danny's son earlier that year. Before his death, Danny Freeman reportedly warned family members that if anything happened to him, to look at the police. At the time, the Freeman family was looking into suing Craig County for wrongful death. That was the end of the year that Danny and Kathy could sue the county for wrongful death on Shane. 
Ashley told us when she came to her house right after Christmas that they were trying to get $5,000 to get this lawyer. Because after the 9th of January, they couldn't come back and try to sue the county for anything. When they found that the Freeman's house was on fire and they found Kathy's body, they immediately, the county said, oh no, call in the OSBI. Unfortunately, it was the same agent that worked Shane's case. As Lorraine mentioned, one of the first investigators on the scene was David Hayes, the officer who shot Shane Freeman. He later took a lie detector test, passed, and did not take an active role in the investigation of the girl's disappearance. For 16 years, well, he's retired now, but I have put it to him. Laura was not a Freeman. You were there to investigate. My daughter's not a Freeman. You didn't investigate it. So, you know, I hold you personally responsible. And I, and I mean, I don't have to like you. I, I run McDonald's. People don't have to like my sandwiches. They come up and they have a thing. I try to make it right. You're the OSBI agent. I just want you to do your job. You didn't do your job. After researching this case, I wondered why Ashley's boyfriend Jeremy was never considered a serious suspect. I also wondered about the unnamed relatives who were there that night, who they were, what time they left. Both Jeremy and these relatives are the last people that we know of to see the Freeman family and Laura alive. My guess would be that all were accounted for and gave investigators alibis or weren't considered capable But with how badly this case was mishandled from the start, I can't help but wonder how extensively they were investigated. Investigators seem to believe that someone unknown to the girls was responsible for their disappearance rather than an acquaintance, friend, or family member. Early on, police got an anonymous tip that the girls had been murdered and dumped in a mine shaft south of Pitcher, Oklahoma, a town about 25 miles west of Welsh. Police used pressurized cameras and searched the areas extensively, but no signs of the girls were found. After finding nothing in the mines, investigators were forced to admit that they had little to no evidence and activity in the case all but stopped. Things stayed this way until 2002, when suddenly people began to confess. Tommy Lynn Sells was the first one. What, can you kind of tell that story? I kind of read a little bit about it. Tommy Lee Sales was a gentleman that went around visiting people. He made acquaintances, not in good with people, and he would kill them. Up in Kansas somewhere, he was staying with some people that he knew from high school. He ended up killing the dad, the mom, the brothers and sisters, and the little girl that was staying the night. The one little girl, after he slit her throat, she held it shut so it wasn't gurgling. So he left, she got up and walked the distance between her house and the neighbors. And that's the only way, that's how he got caught. By the time he was caught and sent off and and uh, sent to prison down in Texas, he decided, you know, I've been there, that's close enough from where he was at in Kansas. Oh, I, I did it. Well, a lot of his stuff was on, a lot of the stuff about the girls early on was on the internet. You could read about it. But the descriptions he gave of the girls, of Danny and Kathy, uh, where, where they were proximity to the road were so far off. Neither Lorraine nor investigators believed that Sells was responsible for the girls' disappearance. One investigator later said that he believed it was a bid for attention on the part of Sells. He just wanted a day out of jail. He drove them 
up towards the Oklahoma, Texas line and said, you know, they were in this ravine, blah, 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 and I got there and there was nothing. There was another person who confessed to the crime, which both Lorraine and investigators took more seriously, another convicted killer by the name of Jeremy Jones. Jeremy Jones is a serial killer who was arrested in 2004 for the murder of an Alabama woman named Lisa Nichols. He entered her house, raped her at gunpoint, shot her three times in the head, doused her body with gasoline, and lit her on fire. Okay, Jeremy Jones is in Alabama State Prison. This young man told them things when they were talking with him that you have to have first-hand knowledge or you had to have been there. You know, how do you know that? Jones knew Danny Freeman and had lived in Oklahoma until 2000. He said he knew a man named Charlie, a local dealer who Danny owed money to. Jeremy was friends with Charlie Kreider. So could he have known how to come to the Freemans? Yeah, if he come out there with Charlie. But, you know, he did say that he went there because Denny owed one of his friends money and Denny was going to pay up. You know, he took the girls, killed Denny, Kathy, set the house on fire, took the girls. He bound them, gagged them, and shot them. In her true crime book about Jeremy Jones called Bloodlust, author Sheila Johnson details Jones's confession. Jones told investigators that Danny Freeman owed some of his friends money, around $20,000. This later changed to only $5,000, close to the amount Ashley had saved in the freezer. He said he killed them not because he was asked to, but because he wanted to. I'll read this excerpt from Johnson's book. The person named Souter here is Sheriff Souter, who was sheriff of Craig County, where the girls lived and disappeared from. Jones was in prison and being questioned after confessing to many other crimes. Her book reads, quote, Jones told Souter that he had been high on methamphetamine when he went looking for the Freeman's home, which took him several hours to find. He said he located the trailer sometime after midnight and got a 12-gauge shotgun out of his truck. He said he entered the trailer, shot the Freemans in their bedroom while they were sleeping, scattered some clothes on the floor, and doused it with accelerant, then torched the room and went back outside to his truck. Then, according to Souter, Jones said he was surprised when the two girls ran out of the burning trailer towards Jones's truck, believing that he was just passing by and saw the fire, and had just arrived to see if there was anything he could do. He got the girls into his truck, telling them they'd go get help. Then, Jones said, he drove them to a remote area of Kansas, near Galena, where he shot the two girls and threw their bodies into an abandoned mine pit. He claimed he sexually assaulted one of the girls, and also told Souter that one of the girls had tried to escape, but said that he shot her as she ran away. End quote. Years and years ago, there used to be underground mining that you could physically drive big vehicles down in and they would mine and put the dirt in and you'd drive it out. So, And then ever so often, there's a round shaft that comes up to the top of the ground that you can put air down in there and stuff like that down into the people that's working on it. So, you know, uh, you know, he supposedly threw these bodies down these mine shafts. Jones confessed in the winter of 2005, and as police began their search of the mines, bad weather set in, delaying the initial search for months. Many law enforcement agencies offered to help probe the deep and foreboding mines. 
They hired an outside company called NecroSearch to use the latest technology, including ground-penetrating radar and aerial photography to look for disturbed ground. Investigators also used cadaver dogs. Investigators faced a major obstacle, trash, and lots of it. They discovered that the old mines had been used for years as an illegal dumping ground. Metal objects like tin cans interfered with the ground-penetrating radar. The dogs were thrown off by the smell of the garbage, rendering them all but useless. The team also used cameras in shafts filled with water, but nothing was ever found. We looked and we couldn't find anything. Then he retracted everything he said. In interviews with the press shortly after telling his story to police, Jeremy Jones recanted all of his confessions, of which Ashley and Laura were just one. He had confessed to over 13 additional crimes, which he was now denying having any involvement in. Jones said he had never taken a human life and had never told the investigators that he had. He told the press that they would find nothing in the mines. He's on death row in the state of Alabama. Do you think he was involved? Uh, I think that he is. It's just you got to see what part, because his mother was very, very ill for a while, and he decided that he didn't want to bring any more trash talk to his mom. But his mom has passed away now, so I don't know. My gut feeling is somebody come to the house, they come there for one reason, and they wanted to talk to Daddy. You know, it's about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, things escalated, and from there, Kathy got shot, Danny got shot, house burned to the ground, and here's two girls that may have been hiding up to the point that that house got set on fire, and then, then they run out of the house. They're like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And they just take the girls. Wrong place, wrong time. But it's going to go back to Danny Freeman. 100%. It'll go back to him. After Jones's confession and retraction, the case has had little new information. Lorraine works every day to keep her daughter in public memory. Like so many others who have missing loved ones, Lorraine has taken on the search herself and works to get any information she can. Uh, I will tell you everything you see out there that I do, I stir the pot a lot. You know, what do you do when your child disappears? There are support groups that are out there to help families. There are things families can do. You do have rights. Even though I was told, you need to go home and we're going to go find your daughter. I tell people now, uh-uh, don't go home. You stay on that trail. You be at the police station every day. Law enforcement cannot go in another county. They have to call, hey, we're coming over, blah, blah, blah. I don't have to do that. I'm the parent. I don't got to go talk to nobody. I know I have to have landowner's permission. I can do what I want. I will not declare Laura legally dead. And everything I'm doing now, people say, well, are you forgetting about Ashley? I said, no. The Freemans have already declared her legally dead. When I find Laura, I will find Ashley. We have a Find Laura Bible page. She had uh, been gone 16 years at Christmas, and I put it on there, you know, you've been gone 16 years, you're 32, you've been missing half your life. You know, who can we get to talking? Uh, we're finding out now a lot of them that are talking that are kids of parents that ran with people in the drug world. 
And it's the kids that now have kids. It's like, you know what? What if this was us? What if this was your grandchild? Some of them have come forward and said, you know, I don't know if this means anything, but back in the day, you know, some of them just want to tell you what they know. We've talked to a lot of people that originally went and talked to law enforcement, but nobody come out and investigated what these people are saying. I talked with a lady. For 16 years, she's carried a burden that she thinks she saw Laura the morning of the fire. 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, there's a car comes right by her, and she says, Lorraine, that's your daughter. And she told me the look of horror on Laura's face was unreal. It took me a while to get this lady to talk to me because she's scared to death. If she saw them, did they see her? Are they coming back to hurt them, you know? Which the husband said, you need to realize in 16 years, she hasn't told anybody this. And she said, now all I can think of is what if I was the last person to see her alive? And I did nothing. And I said, you know, God lets things happen for a reason. You need to know bad things happen to good people. Somebody did this to us. What do we need to do? And that's my mission every day. Keep it out there, hoping that good Lord will say, hey, today you you need to get a guilty conscience. You need to make a phone call or let something be found. Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible have been missing since December 30th, 1999. Foul play is suspected in their disappearance. If you have any information, please visit Lorraine's Facebook page for Laura. Find Laura Bible. Laura is spelled L-A-U-R-I-A. A post on that page, dated on the 17th of December 2016, reads, 17 years ago, the year you did not come home. If only someone would give up the information, please. We love you always. We will never give up. We would like to thank Lorraine Bible for speaking with us about her daughter. For more information, including sources, links, and pictures, check out our website at thinairpodcast.com. While you're over at our website, check out links to donate at our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash thinairpodcast. Your donations allow us to devote as much time as possible to the research, writing, and production of our show. You can make a donation for as little as $1 a month. A large amount of the music you heard today in our podcast was created by our friends at Conifer Audio. Additional music was provided by Chris Zabriskie. You can find his music at chriszabriskie.com. Links are available on our website. And before we go, we want to thank all of you, our listeners, for your continued support with this podcast. We really appreciate it, and we can't wait to share our stories with you in 2017.